Blog Talk Radio. topical. 
and it won an award, really award that meant a lot to me, a gold medal for drama from Readers' Favorites International Book Awards. And the other book that's just brand new is a collection of short stories, and those two, those short stories, too, have almost all won some kind of national fiction prize in literary magazines, like the Barry Hanna Prize and some Ron Rash Awards, some other things like that. But the book as a whole, I just learned, is now a finalist for short stories in the Forward Reviews Indie Fab Contest. So uh, award ceremony. So I'm, I'm pretty excited about that because it's brand new, and you know I don't have that many readers yet, but all of them have given it five star reviews. So it's off to a good start. Congratulations on that, Mary Lee. So, Mary Lee, what type of reader would you say would enjoy your type of fiction? I think readers who like Alice Munro, Margaret Atwood, Tobias Wolf, Juno Diaz, Toni Morrison, uh, international writers like Naguib uh, Mahfouz, uh, I think those readers would really appreciate what I'm trying to do. I'm a very old-fashioned writer, uh, literary writer, and um, I don't write romances. I write books that are meant to last. And I I write about people from all around the world because I've traveled a lot in my life and uh, paid attention when I was traveling. So you write books that are timeless. I understand yes. that. I'm interested in one of your old novels, well, your first novel, Montpelier Tomorrow. The protagonist, Colleen Gallagher, seems to be a character many of us can relate to. Her daughter's husband falls ill and she rolls up her sleeves and moves in, juggling the multiple roles of grandma, cook, and caregiver. In this story, is this story, Marilee, based on something that happened to you or someone you know? It seems to hit home on so many fronts. Uh, yes, actually, um, not not just one person I know, but on on several people. I mean, I've been a caregiver for several people in my family, and okay. the one who uh, it, it, the episode of caregiving, the, the the period of years I spent the most doing that was for my son-in-law who had ALS. So, yes, this book began um, with an autobiographical situation, but it, you know, far exceeded what, what um, it, it went out, outside the boundaries of what you would call memoir. It's not a memoir, it's fiction. And, right. Uh, so anyway, that's what it is. Uh, any anybody who's taking care of somebody with Alzheimer's disease or Parkinson's, any of the neurological diseases, they're in there for the long haul. Also, right. people who are caregivers for injured veterans who come back with nerve damage, they have the same issues, which is that there are some subtle changes that take place, even though the person might look physically okay, and the changes that occur are impacting the caregiver 24 hours a day. You can't escape them. 
So I'm um, I'm curious, um, your daughter. What did she think of Montpelier tomorrow? How did she, how did she uh, feel about the book? Uh, well, she has, has she has not been able to read it, and I don't think this book is for people who are currently in a caregiving for ALS person's life. Uh, I think it would be good. You know, if a few years have passed and you're thinking about what you went through and you want some perspective, I think this book would be excellent for that. And I also think that it opens a window into something that is a national a national issue, which is what do we do when we have patients with long-term care needs? Right. Most traditional mechanisms of supporting those people don't exist anymore. We don't have strong church communities. We don't have uh, neighborhoods where everybody knows one another. We don't have a casserole brigade. So people who are in that situation really uh, have to rely on family members because there are no government programs that are going to help them. We're attracted to Colleen partly because of the maternal instinct that we have. And when you read the blurb that says Colleen Gallagher would do anything to protect her children from harm, we are completely drawn to her because we see that her children come first in her life, and that is one of the most paramount aspects of the story. Would you agree, Marilee? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But Colleen, probably like most women who are in their 50s, believes that she's done with taking care of her children and now she's going to have some me time. It sounds probably a little selfish, but nah. most people <laughs> most people feel like they they want they've done their job, they've done a good job, they've launched their kids and they've reclaimed that extra bedroom for their sewing projects. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> all of a sudden, they're Man. they're called back into action like a, you know, like a a fifty five year old uh, man could be called back to serve as a private in the army on the front line. <laughs> <laughs> and that's really what caring for an ALS patient uh, feels like after a while. I mean, the first first couple of months are okay, but then. It just goes on and on, and people become exhausted. One five-star Amazon review by Meg reads in part, The first chapter drew me in immediately. Marilee McDonald writes thoughtfully and eloquently, yet comfortably and matter-of-fact. The discernible conflict the characters face in this book is revealed quickly, and since the people in the book are engaging and provocative from the start, the momentum rocketed me into the rest of the book. Her attention to detail is remarkable, from describing so many different foods and meals to the way her back felt. I could vividly picture every single moment in my head. Wow, what a great review. Phrases like eloquently engaging and provocative and rocketing momentum are great testaments to writing. <laughs> you nailed it, Marilee. Well, thank you, and thanks for going and finding that review. 
you just reminded me that I'm going to read from a section of my other book in just a second, but I, it's on the other side of the room, so excuse me for just one second while I go and, uh, and grab it. So we were just talking about the review her first book got, and it's called Montpelier Tomorrow. And uh, it was just okay. a fantastic review. So, yeah, we were talking about that review you got. Uh, it was amazing. So did you get the book? I do. You know, the good, thing about good. the uh, reviews that, that is uh-huh. really um, rewarding for me is that many people have said they were finally able to forgive themselves when they read this book. Right. For right. not being perfect. And and that is something that's awesome and amazing. So, Marilee, how did you get your first book published? And talk about some of the challenges, if any, in the publishing process. Well, I waited a long time. I, I beat my head against the wall of trying to find agents, trying to get a major publisher for this book. And nobody would take it, although they all said they loved the book. So I found... Did they say why? uh, Yeah, they did say why. They didn't think it was commercially viable. Okay. Didn't think people would buy it. Even Um, though they loved the book, they didn't think it was saleable. Yep, that was the problem. So eventually I, I found an independent press, which means husband and wife, who put out about 30 to 35 books a year, and they took the book. Uh, They had it for one day, and they said, we love this book, we'll take it, here's a contract. So after all the years of knocking on doors and writing query letters, I had an instant success with that. And I thought, you know what, I really like that personal touch, Uh, the, com- the publisher is all things that matter press, and I think it was a good match between my book and their intentions as a press to produce books that make a difference. Yes, the other thing is a testament to your persistence. Merrily, we as authors take so many different paths to discover and hone our craft. How did you learn to write and make the written word come to life? Did you study it in college or take any creative writing classes? For sure, I, I do, I, and I'm still learning. I, I Back in 1971, my first husband was killed in a car accident, and I went to school and got an M.A. in creative writing because I didn't know what else to do, and I was pregnant with my fifth child. So I thought, you know, I, I wanted to write. It's always had always been my hope. I had been writing. I had written a novel the year before that. So I submitted that and uh, got into the program at San Francisco State, and voila, two years later I came out with a degree, but... I wanted to stay in the Bay Area because of my family in Bay Area of California because of my family connections out there. Right. And so I couldn't find a job teaching writing. And really I had no business teaching writing. I barely knew how to write myself. So. <laughs> <laughs> but 
but since then I'm 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 sort of a workshopaholic. I uh yeah, I just uh, finished another program through Stanford's continuing education school on novel writing and um that was a lot of fun and you know just pick up stuff little bit of stuff all the time. I'm always studying the craft. Yes. Yes. Let's talk about your most recent publication, a short story collection, Bonds of Love and Blood. I love the title, by the way. Now, do all of these shorties have a central link, or are they isolated compilations? Uh, they're isolated, and they were they. They're stories about people who are at crossroads in their lives, so they're not like Elizabeth Strout's. Uh, book of linked stories where there's one character appearing in each of the story, the same character. Right. No, these are all separate stories, male and female protagonists, old and young, and people from other countries, other parts of the world. Two stories are set in Turkey. One is set in Thailand. There um, is a story called... um, one Friday night in Baltimore that I wrote about a dozen years ago about a wrongful arrest in Baltimore, and that's told from the point of view of a young African-American man. But I can assure you that that story is absolutely spot-on accurate. So (laughs) I try to... um, The thing that these stories have in common is that they're all about people who are displaced or misplaced. They're finding themselves in an unfamiliar circumstance, and they're misreading some of the cues. Not all of the cues, but some of them. You know, they're making cultural gaffes. They're saying the wrong thing. Like this, this guy in Baltimore says to the cop, "Hey, you ought to, you ought to work out a little more. You're kind of not very fit." And that's just the wrong thing to say. But um, anyway, so they're they're all what I think of as flawed characters. I like to write about people who are not perfect and who have, you know, they have a lot of strengths, but then they have Achilles heels and those areas where they don't function well come right to the surface in a story. And in Montpelier tomorrow, too. But certainly in Bonds of Love and Blood. Distant mist. Uh, uh, how interesting. So, Marilee, you have graciously agreed to read from this collection. Can you set up the piece before you read it? Sure. Um, this story is called The Bean Grower, and it's about a woman who has a small organic farm where she she raises heirloom beans, and the farm is in northern New England. And she's gone around to the neighboring farms, many of which have been abandoned, and found beans that were planted there by the early, early immigrants. And so she has harvested those and is growing them and now is selling them nationwide in a, a bean-growing business. So that's her job. And she has a handyman who helps her. And he doesn't really, he's really tired of the weather there in New England, the retirement age. And she's determined uh, 
to stick out the storm that is threatening to move in and destroy, you know, shut down their area of New England. So that's the setup. Okay. The bean grower. I'll just tell you one thing. The one of the kinds of beans she grows are called valentines. So Okay. Her precious valentines. With the snipped fingers of her mittens, Fabienne Drummond felt the six inch bean pods leathery. Beneath the planting beds, rubber tubing coursed with solar heated water. But the heat wasn't sufficient. Wilson Turnrow, a widower she had known since childhood, worked at the opposite end of the greenhouse, packing straw around the pole beans' roots. Icicles hung from his mustache. You look like a walrus, Fabienne said. Suppose so. He clapped his brown snowsuit with gloved hands. Done here. No need to head out to the sugar bush. Wilson in his damn sugar bush. Can you turn on the propane, she said. Don't think it'll do much good. I have to try. He let the door slam. A moment later, she heard the whoosh of the propane burner and felt the downdraft of heat. Registers hung just above the grow lights. The Scarlet Runner, a bean from the 1800s and one of the earliest in her seed bank, had hooked a tendril up and around a hanging fluorescent. What she loved about beans was their active, urgent lust for light. She climbed a step stool, pulled the tendril down, and made the plant more compact. In another week, the speckled, speckled pods of wren's eggs would be ready to harvest. The best she could do for the Commodores and old homesteads and pencil pods was to pack straw around their roots, and she'd been at that all day. If the power stayed on and the sun shone even a little, the straw would hold in enough heat to keep the pods from freezing. The beans might be smaller than average, but they would be good enough for the canvas bags of soup beans she sold at farmer's markets. Outside, the sky had turned the color of pewter, She closed the greenhouse door and looked back. Goodbye, my friends. Good luck. Shoulders hunched, hands tucked beneath her armpits, Fabienne stepped carefully down the icy path. Wind came first from one direction and then the other. Smoke curled from the chimney of the white gabled house where Wilson stood looking up. You see them birds yet, he said. I thought you were going to see about your trees. Look there, he pointed to the side of the house. Up by the louvered attic vents, she saw finches, nuthatches, robins, and jays, the birds that had returned a week ago for spring. The triangular, delicate marks of their feet looked like ivy suckers. In defiance of gravity, they were walking as if suction held them to the wall. It's a wonder they don't fall, her words huffed out a vapor balloon. Reminds me what the Bible says about the end times, he said. I never read that part. A brown bird that looked like a fat cigar coasted in. The little birds made room. I never seen a jayhawk mixing it up with them little birds, he said. This storm's going to be a doozy. With good effort, we protect ourselves, she said. Look there. Wilson pulled her sleeve with his mitten. Blades off the windmill. Gus carried the shriek of ball bearings. The windmill limped. Can you fix it, she asked. 
Wilson's eyes widened. Are you out of your mind? You could fix it before the true cold sets in. It's barely above freezing. I thought you could fix anything. That's what he'd claimed. If it's broke, I can fix it. Oh, just forget it. She turned back to the house. If it goes, we can melt snow. Bucket flush for the toilet. No more showers. I best go drain the pipes, he said. Leave the downstairs toilet, she said. You sure? Just do what I tell you. His eyes touched her face and then moved to the sugar bush. From atop the distant hills, the maple's fingered branches waved like spectators looking down on the white house, the weathered barn, and the greenhouse, its fabric luffing like sails. She walked around to the kitchen door. Wilson had helped her roll up the parlor rugs, spread plastic, and carry in all the seed flats. She could think of nothing more to do apart from waiting for the storm to hit. So there you go. That's the opening of that story. I like that. Will, that, that will they make it? <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Uh, Merrily, the cover of Bonds of Love and Blood intrigues me. A far shot of a man standing alone holding some sort of bag or grip. What is its significance? One of the stories, its, it's significance is that... Um, I suppose we're all alone in ourselves, no matter how much we are connected to other people. We're always looking for, out toward the horizon, what else is possible in life? Where, where is the rest of the world? But we're alone, existentially alone. And that guy I picture as one of the characters in my book, the elderly Mr. Tanaka, whose wife has died and who comes to visit his daughter on the eve of her wedding. He's going to fly from Japan to California, and he's going to land and find that his daughter is just about to sabotage her marriage. So he has to, it's, the title of the story is The Ambassador of Foreign Affairs. So I, view, I think of that guy on the cover as the ambassador of foreign affairs. Uh, is that particular character in my book. Yeah, that that cover says a lot. I like it a lot. Um, Let's talk about the obvious and not so obvious variances of writing short stories as opposed to longer novels. What were the most blatant differences to you, and how did you handle them merrily? Well, with short stories, I, I try to end my short story with uh, one big scene where everything comes together. So if you have a typical short story, the length nowadays is 5,000 5, to 8,000 words. I, I write long. I'm just clearing my throat at 1,000 words. Uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> so I like to use the beginning of a story to set up a situation and then the middle of the story to kind of develop that situation. Just one situation, not a whole life. Just one moment where you're getting a little snapshot and the rest of the life, you learn enough about the rest of the people's lives to feel that you're actually reading a novel because my stories spill out of their, of their word count in that way. And in the end, then there's one big scene where 
whatever was in the beginning, in this case, the tension between these two people, one not liking the storm and the other uh and, and really wanting to move someplace warmer and, and the other one who's just got her feet planted in, in the soil. So they have to come to some rapprochement. Uh, and in a novel, I actually make scene outlines where you have the character in some beginning situation, and then um, they're people who make long-term plans. So typically the characters in short stories are not people who necessarily who make long-term plans. In a novel, yes, they are people who make long-term plans, and you're seeing a broader swath of their life. You're seeing them over the course of days or years, although certainly there have been novels written uh, about a single day, one, one character in a single day. But uh, any, the way I write a novel, I look for what's the situation that's going, going to precipitate the events that lead to a major change in that character. And then we see the character try to cope in various ways uh, with their own deficits, with the challenge that's been thrown down before them to meet or fail. And throughout the course of the novel, it, their situation just has to get worse and worse and worse. And, you know, in Montpelier tomorrow, I probably have hmm, 28 chapters or something like that. I don't know how many because I'm numbers phobic but um i i ha- and then you have to link those together so you you feel the characters under increasing pressure and those pressures are causing character change one of the stories in the book caught my attention called the pancho villa coin tell me more about this work and where it germinated from oh gosh the pancho villa coin well of all the stories in my novel, that story is the most autobiographical. Wow. Uh, my father, yeah, my father was. Uh, it's a story about a 13-year-old girl on a trip to Mexico, and she's with her alcoholic and unpredictable father, who's somewhat charismatic in the right circumstances. She wants to please him, but he is an intimidating guy not just to men, but certainly to her mother. And this girl thinks that she can negotiate that territory between the two of them and that she she can handle her father. As the story goes on, it turns out that he's more of a threat to her than she ever believed. Uh, and the story begins with evidence that the way he views the world is as a power struggle. He views the world as a power struggle. And he he one way he has power is by physical intimidation. But the other way is just by telling stories. And so he has all these stories he tells her. One of the stories is about a coin that he claims to have gotten from Pancho Villa. Yeah, he grew up in El Paso and claimed that he had gotten this coin from Pancho Villa himself, and of course, it was a total lie. But uh, yeah, he was—he was a labor organizer, a communist, um, 
worked for the labor union, and that was very, very autobiographical. I mean, my dad was investigated by the FBI. In fact, my parents weren't even home when the FBI agents showed up at my door, and I had to let them come in and, um, you know, answer their questions. So uh, all of that is the geopolitical reality uh, that informs that story and um, is is very autobiographical. How amazing is that? Wow. Marilee, you've won a number of prestigious honors for your writing. Can you tell us about these wonderful honors? Oh, you know, I think I'm probably kind of like a heat-seeking missile in that if there's an award, I'll try to apply for it. And just by the <laughs> just by the law of averages, you know, you're going to win some of them. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> no, I'm sure they were well deserved. Uh, tell me some of the awards you've won, please. Uh, well, the Barry Hanna Prize. Um, was as given by the University of Mississippi. Uh, the Ron Rash Award was given by a literary magazine in Appalachia. And Ron Rash is a writer who's written about that part of the world, so that was a great honor for me. He's still still working. Um, the American Literary Review Fiction Award chose one of my stories set in Czechoslovakia, and uh, the judge was Amy Tan's editor. Mm. And when I um, I wrote her and asked if I might use a quote from that, she very graciously let me do that. And um, so, you know, it's nice to get the, uh, re- to get the recognition. One award that really meant a lot to me was the Jean Leiby Award. And the title story in the book, Bonds of Love and Blood, comes from a chapbook that was chosen for the Gene Leiby Award. And a few years ago, I met Gene Leiby when I went to a writer's conference in New Orleans, and she was just a force of nature. She was the editor of the Southern Review. And after her very untimely death in a car accident, they, mm. the um, uh, Florida Review, where she had been editor, set up this memorial chapbook contest. And so to win something, to win an award named for her really was particularly meaningful. So right. that's just an example of, you know, it 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 puts you in contact with other people who are making judgments, who see a lot of manuscripts, and it always makes me feel good that, good that mine stood out in some way. I mean, even the Pancho Villa coin, um, I found out that that had won the Barry Hanna Prize. Then the next day I found out that I'd got the Ron Rash Award, too. So that was that was kind of a good year. That was right before Christmas. Um, on a roll. <laughs> on a, yeah, on a roll. <laughs> yeah, oh, that is so good. Um, I have to ask you in closing, a question that makes me chuckle. When you were 27, you began a carpentry apprenticeship at a construction company. What was that like, and did working in carpentry in any way help you become the awesome writer you are today? 
Well, I certainly think that it did because the craft element of carpentry is very similar to the craft element of fiction. There are certain craft elements in carpentry. You know, you learn how to blunt a nail. You learn how to uh, calculate rises and runs for rafters. All of those things are taught. And if you just stick with it and you you learn from people who are experienced, you're going to get to be a pretty good carpenter. <laughs> Same thing with fiction. I mean, there's a lot of craft knowledge out there, more so now than ever. And if you just read the articles that are in magazines like Poets and Writers uh, or the AWP Chronicle or if you read articles that are online, let's say in the interviews that are in Esquire magazine or the New York Times, interviews with working authors, right. where they talk about their craft methods, you can learn a lot. What's next for Marilee? What <laughs> other irons do you have in the fire coming up? I have two books I'm working on. One is a memoir about uh, surrendering my oldest son for adoption when I was 16. I was an unwed mother. I was a junior in high school. And the other is, uh, you know, it's uh, ironic because I then married the father to his father two years later and had four more children. So I promised my son. I had a reunion, and I promised my son I will write this story, the story of how his life began as a little zygote. <laughs> anyway, then the other book I'm working on is called The Vermilion Sea, and that's a book about a young French, French art student who goes to Baja, California in 1769 for one of the Transit of Venus expeditions and who discovers that the promises that were made to him before he left were empty promises because they arrive in time for an epidemic of the black vomit. So uh, it's a little bit like Heart of Darkness in that the world over there, as soon as they land, which they've been longing to do, turns into a very threatening and, and strange place. And it deals with some of the elements of displacement and uh, reading the signals wrong, making bad decisions under the stress of that, that seem to crop up again and again in my writing. So, contact. People want to contact you, follow you, uh, your website. Give out any contact information you'd like. I'd love for people to drop my by my website, whether they're readers or writers. I have a lot of craft information, how-to stuff for writers on there. And I also have some articles periodically publish things about how people can I increase their ability to enjoy fiction by being an astute reader. So that is at maryleemcdonald.org. And my name is M-A-C, not M-C, maryleemcdonald.org. I'm not really an org. I'm just a person. <laughs> but... <laughs> But some actually some Russians had bought up the Mary Lee McDonald dot com name and they want to charge me three thousand bucks to buy it back and I just refused to do it. So for the moment I'm Mary Lee McDonald dot org. 
Oh, okay, because I thought I had saw something where it was MaryLeeMcDonald.us or something like yep, that. Yes, that, that's another website. I'm in the Authors Guild, and MaryLeeMcDonald.us is... Um, is the website that sort of is I is a holding zone because I'm not really posting <laughs> stuff there. <laughs> a holding zone, I like that. You have been listening to the Funk Soul Cafe with your host, Robert Batista. Look for my free short stories, Carmela's Dream and My Baby Has No Name on Smashwords.com. My guest has been prolific author, book coach, carpenter, and so much more, Marilee McDonald. Visit her fantastic websites, MarileeMcDonald.us and MarileeMcDonald.org, and feast your soul. Thank you so much, Marilee, for being a guest on the Funky, on the Funk Soul Cafe. Great to be here, Robert. Oh, we enjoyed it. I had such a good time. Happy St. Patrick's Day again. Take care. Okay, bye-bye.